Charles Stuart Parnell was one of the greatest leaders of the 19th century and one of the most renowned Irish figures of the 1880s on the international stage. John Dillon, Parnell's lieutenant, was the last leader of the Irish party in Westminster. A new book looks at their lives and overlapping political careers and explores issues of social and cultural division that still complicate Irish politics even 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement. The author is Paul Bew, Emeritus Professor of Irish Politics at Queen's University Belfast and a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. The book is called Ancestral Voices in Irish Politics, Judging Dylan and Parnell. I'm joined now by Paul Bew. Paul, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Great pleasure to have you here in, in studio. Let's clarify, first of all, the pronunciation of the name of the person I call Charles Stuart Parnell, but I know that's not what he called himself. Well, correct. I also called him Parnell for many, many years until my friend Roy Foster, who had written a very important book on Charles Short Parnell, The Man and His Family, explained to me it was not Parnell, but Short Parnell. And I was corrected and I've tried to get it right. I'll tell you the truth, like a lot of Irish people, going back to the time, I slip back into Parnell quite often. Indeed. I shouldn't. No, neither, neither I should call him Parnell as well, but I'd, I've been calling him Parnell for so long, it's very, very difficult to do otherwise. Now, um, you've written over the years quite a lot about mm. uh, about Parnell and Dylan in, in, mm. in, over your career. So why did you want now to look at them both in this sort of dual biography? Well, what I hadn't done is is look at their interaction. And this is about the interaction about these two men and then there is an emblematic sense uh, of which they represent two different traditions within Irish nationalism. And that was the interest to me. So actually I had written a fair bit about both of them in different ways from different angles. But what I'd never done, and I'm not quite sure why, but I'd never done is brought them into the same room with each other. And that's what's going on in this book. Uh, and, and it's very much taking up with the almost the physical, but also the family presence of these men and the traditions that they came from when they're in the same room together. Um, I suppose Parnell or Parnell is from the the, the Protestant patriot yeah. tradition, and Dylan, obviously because of his father being John Blake Dylan, is from a more young Ireland tradition. Yeah. I mean, Dylan is a classic emergent figure. He liked to say, "I'm the grandson of an evicted tenant," but actually, his grandfather was a successful businessman, and his father a successful lawyer educated in Trinity College, Dublin. This is a new emergent Catholic bourgeoisie, and Dylan is, uh, and the, the the particular business interests that they have in the West of Ireland are extensive and not small scale and helped to fund his career throughout his life. So Dylan represents a Catholic bourgeoisie which is not incompetent at making money, among other things, but also very well educated, more literate than Parnell by a long, long way. Some people would say Parnell was very typical of the gentry who were not particularly well-read in this period. And not particularly good at making money either. And not particularly good at making money, and indeed there is some evidence that in the late 1870s it would be wrong to say Parnell was on his knees, but he certainly wasn't making, the family generally weren't making a lot of money in the late 1870s. It's actually one reason why nationalists respected Parnell, because they knew that what money he had, he threw into his political career. They knew that he wasn't rolling in it. 
Now, they were both parliamentarians, Irish Parliamentary Party MPs. And uh, I think at some point during your sojourn in the Houses of Parliament, you realised that you were stalking the same corridors as these two well, men had stalked in their time. Well, there's a Parnell, there's a Parnell statue uh, and indeed there's a Redmond. There's no Dylan. There are a number of uh, major uh, paintings reflecting on the Home Rule debates, huge paintings in the Palace of Westminster, which I have to say I don't think any of the English members of Parliament give more than a glance to, if a glance. There is outside the Salisbury Room in the Lords, there is a major political cartoon, which is a Parnell, and it's Parnell and Gladstone and Salisbury all playing a game as to who Parnell is going to support in the 1885 election. It's Salisbury being the Marquess of Salisbury, the leader of the Tory Sol- party. Salisbury being the Mar- and the Tory Prime Minister in this period. The interesting, one of the things that surprised me in this book, because the book represents a lot on what people look like, how they dressed, Tillens penchant for a red trousers. I mean, I've begun to realise, being in Westminster, actually what people look like, how they dress, how they carry themselves, is actually part of politics. There's a physical, almost a carnal element to what I'm describing in this book, which is different to anything else that I've ever written. But one of the exceptions to the point that I'm trying to make, that these people mixed and looked at each other and listened carefully to tone and people said when Dylan wore his red trousers, you knew you were in for a bad row, um, is Salisbury. Salisbury never, ever bothered leader in the House of Lords, the last major prime minister to do that job from the House of Lords. You couldn't do it, not for 100 years. Not plausible. But he never even bothered to go down and have a look at Parnell. All you have to do is look down, walk down the corridor a few minutes and look in. That was something I would do regularly to watch Commons debates now. He never even bothered. So at the end of it all, towards the end, Margot Asquith said, didn't you know that he was a remarkably handsome man? And he said, what? No, no, I never bothered to look. <laughs> so that in its own way, in one way, it disproves my thesis about how they mixed and they looked at each other. In the other way, the exception to the rule also tells you something. Uh, somebody who did come regularly and watch Parnell make speeches in the House of Commons was one Catherine O'Shea. Yes, and he did glance up. Churchill gets that because Churchill was coming in as a teenager and his father, his father also was personally very friendly with Parnell. And despite the fact you can argue that Churchill's father betrayed Parnell in a certain sense, Parnell never turned on Churchill's father. So there's an affection there. And Churchill describes Parnell glancing up to Kitty, to Catherine O'Shea, mm. and describes him looking up and catching her eye. And other journalists describe Dylan with his children in one night, quiet night, one of his children suddenly realising with Mrs Dylan that their father was speaking, shouting out in the chamber very loudly, Daddy, Daddy, <laughs> which was a... You know, House of Commons has only got used to this kind of thing in more yeah. recent times. Yeah, one doesn't think of John Dillon as a particularly paternal figure, but obviously he was a father, so he was <laughs> he was paternal by definition. Yeah. One of the fascinating things about the book, and one of the things I love about the book, is that you address, um, you know, because you've written about these two men, because you've written about this period before, you address unexpected elements and mm. unexpected mm. issues. For example, where do the members of the Irish Party Eat. Mm. Well, you see, that's so interesting because they tended to eat in Parliament itself because the food would be quite good and it would be quite cheap. Many of the English members would go out to better restaurants nearby. Secondly, people would dress for dinner in that period. They didn't. So they're all sitting together. I'm sure they're many a jolly evening. 
they say in the Westminster Hotel, which is described by William O'Brien as dismal. Uh, um, so they're not rushing back, and why should they? But they're obviously a visibly separate group. They're there en masse, dying together like that, and they're not dressed the way... Right into John Dillon's career, after Parliament's died, MPs were normally dressed. They're not dressed as formally or as well for dinner. And they just, in that sense, they sit out as not quite equal citizens. In other ways, of course, they are more than equal citizens. By the time the Labour Party starts to come in, after 1906, Dillon's been in Parliament for, what is it, 25 years at least? Dillon knows all forms of procedure. So the British, new British Labour Party MPs are always coming to John saying, just guide us through. We want to raise this issue about foreign policy. And Dylan was the only Irish party member who actually was interested in foreign policy. And Dylan really knew. And Dylan would say, well, if I was you, I'd do this and do that. And there were many of them. Dylan, not alone, five, six of them, seven of the Irish party, top-rate speakers. So in that sense, they were respected. But there's also this social dimension as well. Now, um, you suggest that Dylan's nationalism had a certain patriarchal quality. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that that means some sort of patronising uh, Well, no, no, it's just that he, when Parnell talked about his people, Parnell meant either the Parnell family or the w- wider Anglo-Irish gentry. When Dylan talks about his people, he means Catholic Ireland and in a sense he owns them. He determines what they should compromise for or not compromise for at a given time. So like Dev, he looks into his own heart. He did, uh, but it's also, it's slightly surprising because he's carrying this very strong resentment, not against Protestants in general. When he starts out, he's very careful to say there's a Presbyterian tenant class in the North who've got their specific outlooks and to be very respectful towards them. But he does have a thing against the Anglo-Irish gentry. He does have a thing, a very, very hostile attitude towards Trinity College Dublin. Now, John Redmond, who's actually the leader of the Irish Party, had been at Trinity College. Redmond's own, uh, John Dillon, had, had his, his father had been at Trinity as well. Quite why there is this intense dislike, I mean, there's lots of reasons why you might regard as snobbish, you know, tedious, DP Moore and you know, couldn't stand up, upper class boys, uh, uh, you know, entitled. West bo- Brit, as you call Brit. them. There's lots, it's just the sheer intensity of it. And, for example, something that John Redmond, the leader of the Irish, had absolutely nothing but affection for Trinity. So for Dylan, it, there is this thing about the emerging Catholic bourgeoisie, increasingly well-off, increasingly substantial business interests, living in Great George Street, the house that Sir John Parnell had lived in. But there is this resentment of, of what remains, what most people would see as, as the fading gentry and Anglo-Irish interests and West British interests. And Dylan and, and, and so many other nationalists are saying, come on now, John, William O'Brien in particular, it's over for them. Now, now we've got to cut a deal with them now. We've done it. We fought the battle. The land war's over. We cut the deal now. That's what Parliament would have wanted. And Dylan couldn't bring himself to do that. Mm. And it's very, very striking. This really intense visceral dislike, not of Protestants, but of the upper-class ascendancy, which apparently challenged the Catholic upper-middle-class bourgeoisie from which he came himself. Indeed. Um, Interestingly, you point out, and it hadn't occurred to me that it's uh, more than 50 years since F.S.L. Lyon's biography of of Dylan, Mm. that he hasn't attracted a biographer 
for half a century. There have been umpteen biographies of Parnell, including mm. your own. There have been uh, biographies of William O'Brien, of, of, of John Redmond, mm. uh, you know, and, peop- and, uh, and his associates, his yeah. close associates. Why not? Why why are people put off John Dillon? It's because the Lions documentary, uh, the Lions biography was so good. Yeah, well, it, partly it is very good. Well, I do think, and I've felt for some time, that, for example, Dillon's connection with radical agrarian politics, the most left-wing politics like Larry Gunnell, who was the only MP in the Irish party who successfully made a transition to Sinn Féin, Dylan's connection with the left like that was not sufficiently dealt with in, in, in Lyons' book, but it is, it, is a very, it is a very good book. But it's more than the fact that people think, oh, there's nothing much more to say. It's because he's fallen out of fashion and he's fallen out of fashion for two reasons. If you're a, a conciliatory nationalist, then you're going to say William O'Brien was right and Dylan missed the chances to reach out to the other community. If you're a Republican, you're going to say Dylan continued to believe in home rule as the best, that, believed that the outcome of the War of Independence was a disaster. I mean, that's really strange. Nobody speaks out, but there's a long struggle for home rule. Nobody speaks out more bitterly against what it had delivered to the Irish people in the twenties and said it's a total mess and a disaster than John Dillon. So from if you're a moderate or if you're a militant, Dillon somehow is, is hopelessly falling in mm. the middle. And you know, he would himself have acknowledged that his career in that sense that was a failure, but it means he doesn't attract admirers. And in my Earlier life on this, I wasn't that attractive. I'm much more attractive. He's an unattractive character, but obviously he's not an uninteresting well, character. Well, but there are but there are things that you've got to look at which are attractive. Like, for example, nobody believed more in the Irish language. His son, in the end, in the 20th century, was, I think it's widely accepted, the greatest scholar mm. of the Irish language, Miles still in, in, in the country. Uh, nobody believed in it more, and nobody was more determined that it not be used as a political instrument against Protestants in jobs. Nobody, there are things like that which are really striking in Dylan's later career. And, and the more his career goes on, the more even he begins to acknowledge in the last 10 years the ascendancy of God. And Penny finally drops with him, you know, 10 years after most other people have realised that they've gone as, as, as a serious force in Irish life. And there is this most dramatic thing he says in his last speech, which I think one of the faults of my book is I should have made more of it. In his very last speech, the last statement of, of constitutional nationalism in Parliament, he says, I was opposed to the Act of Union, which I regard as immoral, but my politics are about democratic Irish nationalism is about trying to overturn something that was immoral by not immoral means. Mm. And that, of course, is great critique of, of both de Valera and, and, and Michael Collins. The, the task was to try and turn it, which was itself politically immoral, had to be changed but not to use immoral means so to do. Speaking of immorality, one of the things that puzzled me about the book is one of your early chapters deals with John Mitchell and his legacy. Why did John Mitchell deserve so much attention in a book on Parnell and Dylan? Well, partly the way, it's partly the way that Dylan in particular, Parnell to a lesser degree, they are votaries of of the Mitchell cult. I mean, Dylan throws himself into that uh, Parnell is also there. And in 1875, when Mitchell returns to Ireland, having been in America for a long time, and wins that seat, which does change everything, that seat in Tipperary, because it shows 
well, there have been other signs of it that actually the Fenians, if they organised themselves, could win a parliamentary seat. He's not allowed to keep the seat. He's not winning. First yeah. time he has to, he has to uh, fight it a second time, and he dies anyway. He could have gone to Westminster. And the, even the English establishment say we could say this is an escaped criminal. We're not going to. That would be too much. But this is also somebody coming back to Ireland in 1975 who has written extensively, who has served time in jail after the uh, American Civil War and who is about as pro-slavery, more pro-slavery than than many of the members of the Confederate administration. Neither Dylan, 1875, but neither Dylan nor Parnell are pro-slavery. But Dylan, when Mitchell is in Ireland, he's dying, visibly dying, one of the last... At the funeral, apart from the family, the only person there is John Dillon, really, in the end, uh, as a pallbearer. But Dillon, John Dillon reads out in Cork. It's the statement that Mitchell wants to read out, including this fulmination in favour of slavery. And he reads it out even though he can't have believed it himself. We know exactly what John Dillon, his father, thought. We know what Parnell, Parnell said he'd been a bit, if only been a bit older, he'd have joined the, the Union Army. So, you know, we know what they thought about slavery, Mm. but both of them decide to give him a pass on this. Of course, the British papers say, quite understandably, say, well, so you're for freedom, are you, for the Irish, but not apparently for black people. What's going on here? Well, the British record in the American Civil War wouldn't be exemplary either, would it? (laughs) Yes, but that's to touch on that, you see. Irish nationalists loved quite rightly to say that, particularly Gladstone's ambiguous language. And that's why the Mitchell thing is especially embarrassing, because most Irish nationalists, most Irish Americans have got a position you could stand over on mm. the American Civil War. Yeah, the O'Connellites. Uh, yeah, uh, and O'Connell as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did the O'Shea divorce give carte blanche to John Dillon to do something that he had long wished to do and unload on Parnell? Or, like William O'Brien, mm. did he do so with an element of regret? You don't see the same regret, and I, I think it's going too far to say that he always wanted to do so, or Addison Ariel Ponce, although he knew from very early on about this relationship. He'd known for a decade about the possible vulnerability that would have created for Parnell. But there is a very long before the divorce case, it becomes clear that on the land issue, Parnell has decided no more militancy. I'm not ever going on a land platform myself again, and we should be looking to sort this out in a way that brings about social peace and stability in Ireland as quickly as possible. Now, Dylan has not decided that in 1890, and he certainly hasn't decided, even as late as 1903, he's not decided it. So there, there is this clear tension between, quite literally, what they say in Hansard. If you look at it, Parnell is looking for ways out. Parnell is saying it's, it's, it's an exaggerated question, you know, we, we don't need to worry about the stronger farmers, all these sorts of things. And and Dylan is not, not at all interested in the idea that the Irish land question could possibly be exaggerated in support. She couldn't possibly exaggerate because it's so transcendently mm. important. And, of course, Parnell just did not support the, the plan of campaign. This uh, is the kind uh, of the second land and war. And Dylan ends up in jail during that campaign. And Parnell had absolutely no time for it at all in regard to the... As a, as a huge political mistake and a hugely pointed mistake. And he also believed that, for example, in the rich farmers, the Murrow tenantry in Limerick, uh, Lord Concurry's tenants, he also believed that Dylan had wound these people up into a conflict where these well-off farmers were going to lose out. And either the national cause then paid out to these well-out farmers so they didn't lose out, 
or the national cause suffered. And so he also believed that Dylan was an adventurist in these areas, like, like leading to outcomes in agrarian conflicts which were not good. Yeah, I mean, Parnell certainly didn't like spending money on the victims, if you can call them that, of the, no. of the plan of campaign. Finally, the, the title of the book is Ancestral Voices yeah. in Irish Politics, which is an interesting title. You think with the principle of consent for a united Ireland is discussed today, that we can view the legacy of, of both men, that we can take that legacy into consideration? I, I do think that both of them had embraced what we now call the principle of consent. Parnell, in his May 1891 speech in Belfast, Dillon in, in 1914, now this is at the time of the Home Rule crisis, and there's a major head-to-head conflict between the LC Unionist and the Redmondite Dillonite party. How are we going to sort out the Home Rule crisis? And Dillon talks to Healy and he says, look, we've opposed coercion for our own people all this time. How can we possibly advocate coercion for this other group? It undermines our own advocacy. So Dylan quite clearly supported the idea that special arrangements had to be made. He believed, he was quite friendly with Sir James Craig, more than friendly actually, and he believed that ultimately anyway, if you ended this on the basis of home rule, that gradually the Unionists of the North would come in with people like him where there were friendships. That's probably naive, but that's definitely what he actually believed. I mean, he believed that the... Sinn Féin revolution was a total failure in the sense that it deepened partition and the form of self-government that Ireland got, in his view, was actually... The Spectator, I think, calls Sinn Féiners at that time, what's it called, the illegitimate child of ultramontanism and Jacobins. (laughs) I think that was Dylan's view. I think that was Dylan's view. Well, the book is called Ancestral Voices in Irish Politics, Judging Dylan and Parnell. And I make a vow that from now on I'm going to attempt to call him Parnell. I'm sure, like yourself, I would slip back, slip back. But uh, from now on, he's Charles Stewart Parnell. Uh, The author is my guest, Paul Bew. Thank you very much, Paul, for joining us on the History Show this evening. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Jamie Doyle and Ruth Kennington on sound and our researcher, Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>